This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. The impacts of COVID-19 have changed all of our lives dramatically in ways that we could never have expected or imagined. We've been forced into isolation and unable to see our family and friends. Many have lost jobs that they thought were secure or have been unable to continue their tertiary studies because they couldn't get back into the countries where they were enrolled. Children have lost time at school. We can't leave this country nor enter any other. There's an external threat we can't control and we're living with immense uncertainty. Now imagine what it must be like when, as a refugee, you're forced to flee everything you've ever known, unsure if or when you will see your family again. When you're deprived of your education or your livelihood because you're stuck in limbo for years trying to find safety. Or when your freedom is curtailed because you're detained indefinitely. And now imagine what it's like if you have been through all of this and face COVID-19 as well. What is it like to experience this pandemic when your legal and economic status is already precarious, when you are already separated from your loved ones, when your movement is already curtailed and when your future is already extremely uncertain? In today's webinar, we're joined by three experts who will shed light on the differential impact this pandemic is having on refugees and people seeking asylum living in the Australian community. I would like to introduce them to you now. Sarah Dale is the Centre Director and Principal Solicitor of RACS, the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Sydney. RACS provides free legal advice, assistance and representation to disadvantaged and vulnerable people seeking asylum. In 2018, Sarah was awarded the Migration Partner of the Year by Lawyers Weekly. Frances Rush is the CEO of the Asylum Seekers Centre in Sydney, which provides practical and personal support for people living in the community who are seeking asylum. She has enormous experience as a social worker in both the government and community sectors. And last year, she was awarded an Order of Australian Medal for her service to the community. Jakupa Tahiri is on the steering committee of the National Refugee-Led Advisory and Advocacy Group. And she's also a policy officer with the Refugee Council of Australia the national umbrella body for refugees and people seeking asylum and the organisations that support them. The Australian Financial Review named Shakupa as one of Australia's top 100 women of influence in 2018. So welcome to the three of you. I'd like to begin by asking you, Sarah, whether you could outline the broad policy framework for refugees and people seeking asylum when it comes to the impact of COVID-19. So for instance, to what extent are they eligible for the various support packages that the government has provided? And do you know, for example, 
what might happen to people on the temporary safe haven enterprise visas if they can't fulfill the pathway requirements to apply for the next visa. Thanks very much, Jane. And I want to thank all of you for coming today. And I must admit, hearing your intro just then, Jane, left me with chills, despite the fact this is kind of my every day. But having someone tell it back to you um, is just such a stark reminder. So, you know, as normal, the experience of people seeking asylum is founded in many different laws, policy, different areas of practice. Uh, at the moment, people seeking asylum, they're not only influenced by immigration and immigration law and policy, there's that of social security, there's that of public health directives. Now, they, like us, have to follow all the restrictions and the, the laws that are in place right now in terms of social distancing, eligibility to work, things like that. What is particularly uh, apparent uh, in COVID-19 is the distinction between us and them, uh, even, even between those that have that refugee status and don't have that refugee status. So in, in a nutshell, people when they arrive in Australia put in an application for protection, they're given a bridging visa. That bridging visa allows you to remain in the community waiting until you have an outcome. Now it's our experience, particularly for people that arrive by boat, that they're now waiting to, in their seventh year uh, and they're still on that bridging visa. For people that are on bridging visas, they're not eligible for any government support whatsoever. The only thing that they might be eligible for is what's called as a status resolution support service payment, SRSS. But as we know, many, many millions of dollars was cut from that program in 2019, sorry, 2018. Uh, and so many thousands of people were exited from that program and were left to rely on organisations such as Francis's. I'm sure she can reflect on that as well. Uh, and the community were left to support these people. Despite COVID-19, despite the fact that many people on bridging visas have lost their, lost their jobs, there is no government support for them. We then move to temporary protection visa holders and safe haven enterprise visa holders, CHEVs. They're people that have been through the process, that have been recognised as refugees, many of whom that have been working in our community for you know, nearly a decade. Uh, they're also not eligible for JobKeeper um, and they're not eligible for those additional COVID payments purely due to the status of their visa. Now, had these people arrived a year earlier, had they arrived by plane, they would have access to the full supports. Um, it's purely due to a punitive policy of continuing to punish people for arriving in Australia by boat that they're not eligible for that support. There is that other element of those on a safe haven enterprise visa, which requires them to work for three and a half years in a regional area or study. And if you're working, you shouldn't be taking Centrelink payments. If you take any Centrelink payments, then you're not eligible to move on to an opportunity or a pathway enabling you to apply for another visa in Australia. I call that getting out of the refugee cycle People on TPVs and CHEVs can only apply for another TPV or CHEV unless they meet these pathway requirements. Now, COVID-19 means for many of those visa holders that they cannot work uh, and they cannot access Centrelink. Uh, and if they do stop working or they do um, access Centrelink, then access to that pathway evaporates. 
which means they're ultimately stuck in that continual indefinite visa process. Uh, and what we've seen is one, no additional support for bridging visa holders, two, no access to government support for people that have been in our community for seven, eight years, and three, no exceptions being made to policies that already apply. Sarah, thank you very much for those insights. I think if we can turn to you, Francis, you're dealing with people who are at the, you know, experiencing this every day. And I wondered if you could tell us how you think people are managing in terms of their mental health. For instance, we know that many of your clients have experienced torture or trauma or have been held in detention for prolonged periods of time. How has lockdown and the, this lack of support that Sarah's referred to impacted on their well-being? Thanks, Jane and Sarah and Shakupa. Um, and hello to everyone who's watching this. It's had an enormous impact, which isn't surprising, of course, in terms of what you laid out, what Sarah has put on the table, is people's everyday reality. I think, Sarah, you referred to it as um, us and them in terms of how people are seen. I think with people's mental health, there have been um, immediate impacts because we know that people who come and sought asylum are incredibly resilient and they have gone through an enormous amount and many have been through torture and trauma. To arrive here and then be told you have almost no supports uh, and it comes back to really the essence of civil society. Agencies like ours and others in Sydney across Australia, and we've been in, in discussion with each of those. What is incredibly concerning, I think, for all of us is people's uh, fairly rapid deterioration in mental health, because overnight they were reliant on agencies like ours and their communities, their cultural communities, and where they were linked in. And then to have COVID-19 happen, and slowly, perhaps from January, you started seeing people lose their jobs. And then almost overnight by March, people had lost, those who were lucky to get employment had lost employment. And so they then had literally nothing overnight because most people have had to work three or four part-time jobs if they are able to, to be able to support some basic rent um, and basic, a basic lifestyle. So you saw that sense of who's going to help, that sense of uh, disbelief when people have said, as Sarah has said, seven years you've been here, you've been contributing to our community, often been paying taxes, and yet you are not welcome. You are actually deliberately excluded from any of the support structures that you and I, throughout this pandemic, have been able to avail. And that is enormous impact. What we're saying is we had to close, we closed on the 20th of March. We let everybody know as much as we could through SMS, uh, technology. And of course, on the Monday, it, we were, um, we had tripled the number of phone calls. We set up a hotline to try and capture what was the need. And it was real distress. It was really people saying, I can't feed my children. I have no food. I can't pay my rent. Who's going to help me? And that's an immediate distress. On top of that, everyone, I think, in throughout the pandemic has reacted differently to social isolation, social isolation. But this added another layer for people who, some people have been here and have made connections, others haven't. So you've got that sense to it, you've got economic distress, 
And then when you see the government continuing to say messages like, or you could go home, which in really becomes quite offensive in terms of that narrative when it's not a reality. It is in effect absurd to say that to people seeking asylum. So you are looking at being excluded and you are not seeing, I think through a pipeline, that there is any sense of hope. So that together, those three things together, we know really contribute to a negative impact on people's mental health. So the importance of being able to stay connected. I think another aspect that we've seen really practically is that we, like so many services around Australia, have changed our way of delivering service. So we are now taking food to people. And when you see where people are living, some in garages, some many families sharing, um, and we've seen an increase in people uh, experiencing overcrowding because as people lose their rent and often they're not on a formal lease, then they're moving in with others. So you're seeing, we saw uh, four families in a two bedroom flat recently. That's just one example. But also that sense of, I can't top up my mobile phone um, becomes really critical. It becomes really critical for particularly for women in a domestic or a family violence situation because that means they're already isolated, they're contained within potentially a very dangerous situation. And there is great fear because there's fear of approaching people for help, what it would mean to their visa, their partner's visa, um, and their ability to stay in Australia. Um, so that becomes really complicated. It, we're seeing also the impact on children. Today, I think if you saw the papers, you see that new figures released about the kids helpline and there's a 25% increase in children um, calling that helpline. And what we do know about children is they're very attuned to the stress of their parents. So under, with COVID-19, there's enormous stress on families. There's stress on families who've lost their job, but people who are not on a temporary visa are eligible for at least JobSeeker. And this group of people are not, and that really contributes to that distress. So we are concerned um, and trying to do what we can to support cultural communities, to really um, encourage people who are calling us all the time and when we see people of how to stay connected. We're trying to get data to people so that they can um, be able to make contact and call for help when needed. So there's multiple layers. Many people have connected to the supports and the agencies such as uh, survivors of torture and trauma starts and equivalent agencies around Australia. And that's a really positive thing. But what would really address uh, um, or have some impact on people's mental health is for the federal government to enable people to have access to a regular payment so that they can maintain their housing. They can at least um, become more stable and stay connected. So I think that's really important. Well, Francis, thank goodness for organisations like yours around the country, because I think given the absence of other support, um, I mean, it's already a very dire situation you're describing and one hates to think what it would be like if, if people like you weren't there at the other end of the phone and, and the internet. Shakufa, you are part of a national refugee-led organisation, NRAD, and you recently released a report that found among the hardest hit were those on bridging visas and temporary protection visas, the elderly and LGBTIQ refugees 
I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the findings, please, and also how people's past experiences have shaped their ability to deal with this new challenge. Uh, thank you, Jane. Thank you, everybody else. Uh, thank you all for having me. Um, this, is, uh, this is a really useful webinar at a very useful time to be in. Um, actually, addressing your first question in relation to how refugees are finding uh, that their past experience may be shaping their um, ability to deal with the current situation. Um, well, you know, as Francis and Sarah uh, actually outlined, uh, there is just uh, such a complex web of um, vulnerabilities facing uh, particularly people on TPV shared and people seeking asylum uh, who are on bridging visas. Um, and, uh, you know, that obviously coupled with the existing and outstanding limbo, but also the uncertainty that comes with uh, the COVID-19 uh, and considering the fact that you know, these are members, uh, members of families that have actually members of um, the rest of their members of the families stuck elsewhere in the world with really poor health system um, and uh, an uncertain uh, consequence of COVID-19 uh, on the rest of their families. So it, it is a very uncertain and, and, and vulnerable times. And I just don't think that, um, you know, uh, refugees, <laughs> resilient, past resilience actually has really translated into extra agility in dealing with this uh, crisis uh, that is um, a health uh, crisis and a pandemic. And, uh, you know, as we as you were seeing, I don't think that the gold standard response uh, in terms of health and economic response from the federal government has translated into anything um, for vulnerable groups like refugees, um, just because they have been, you know, um, deliberately excluded from the support measures. And that has really meant that there is a huge uh, other mountain for them to climb um, on the top of every other vulnerability that they've had in the past. And so um, the support structure that has been built um, in the COVID-19 environment really hasn't been extended to them. And it's an, a nation that, uh, that is dealing uh, with the crisis together, but really excludes the most vulnerable um, uh, from actually uh, you know, uh, being extended the support measures that everybody else is. So it's not a very leveled playing field for, for them to deal with this situation. So they're not dealing really well with it. Um, in relation to NRAG, um, NRAG is actually just to, just to give a bit of a context, um, NRAG is uh, launched this year, February. Um, so it's a pretty new entity, um, but it has been actually a long-standing vision um, uh, that has actually, you know, tr uh, then transcended into um, a refugee-led advocacy uh, organization. It, it, it really emerges out of the void that has existed for a long time, where people from a lived experience, for, uh, people from uh, and, and from affected communities, haven't been a, a very, at the very core of advocacy, you know, um, uh, policy, media and public discourse. Um, and so NRAC has come about to um, fill that gap and uh, make sure that you know, the leadership and uh, the lived experience of people uh, as a means of expertise translates into positive policy changes. Um, and the philosophy of NRAG is of course premised on the strength that the refugees bring, um, not just in terms of you know, the shock value or the cognitive response that they can create with their experiences, but translating, translating that into um, a very important wisdom um, and then um, fitting that into decision-making processes that affect them most and going beyond um, uh, you know, the storytelling or shock value that I just talked about. So, NRAG really aims to include people um, in the policy decision-making. Um, it ensures that, uh, well, it aims at least to extend those decision-making tables uh, uh, to people of uh, affected communities. Um, and it 
aims to include um, all groups of uh, refugees, and that includes stateless people, people seeking asylum, uh, members of the LGBTI community, um, uh, who are you know, more marginalized inside a marginalized community. Um, so even though it, this is not a novel idea, um, I think that the emergence of a national-led uh, refugee entity um, is a, a very new idea. <laughs> it, is a, it, it is a very new thing. Um, so uh, because at a state level, it has existed uh, where refugee-led entities have led um, uh, the voices in, in to some extent, uh, but it has only been um, in 2018 when that has translated into refu uh, global refugee-led movements and now uh, a national one. So it really makes sense and it's a very timely thing to have happened. But uh, onto the research actually and um, the substance of the work of NRAG, uh, which really is based on the consultation and the unique position that it has uh, when it comes to uh, communicating uh, with the community and the relationship it shares with communities that the Syrian community actually represents, um, not exhaustively, but um, at the very best, a, a representative body. Um, there, you know, uh, like you mentioned, Jane, um, it really it reiterated the fact that um, people from, um, you know, people seeking asylum, people on bridging visas, people on TPP SHEV, uh, uh, people from LGBTIQ communities are the uh, most hard hit uh, in this crisis, um, essentially because they're not actually included um, as part of the response uh, recipients. Um, and uh, the four theme that actually came out was really focused on asylum issues, um, the issues with digital divide and literacy amongst refugee communities, um, which detailed the fact that there is such a dilemma for many groups within the refugee community um, uh, to close the digital divide. Um, and, and, and there is, seems to be a lot of problem with equitable access uh, to online resources and services. So while you see that there are a lot of resources for at least you know, the settled refugee communities, uh, they're not you know, translated in a way that actually reaches or um, fulfills the intention of uh, those translated materials or resources. And so, um, people who need it most uh, are obviously, you know, the elderly at this very time. Um, and so the digital literacy really um, was a dominant part of the discussion when it came to digital divide. And it posed major challenges for homeschooling and online learning for refugee youth, um, because they do live in, 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 in households where parents are essentially not able to help them. Um, but also, um, I think there was, uh, you know, a, a very clear theme that, you know, all of this um, intersection, all of these challenges posed a very complex intersection for people um, seeking asylum and people on temporary visas uh, with their families stuck and uh, with the longstanding, uh, you know, uh, policies and directions uh, from the federal government uh, that keep them separated in these very wonderful times. Um, I mean, the, the report is a 15-page um, outcomes report, and um, if you're anybody's interested to read that in detail, I will leave that to them. Uh, but I suppose for the sake of time, I'll just uh, leave it there. Thank you very much, Shakupa. And it's wonderful to see that NRAG has got off the ground. Uh, it's so important, as you say, to have refugee-led initiatives and voices being part of this debate. And it seems um, quite astounding that it's taken until now for this to really become um, something that's recognised globally. So thank you for your work too. Sarah, back to you. I was wondering if we could turn now to people who are in detention. Do, do you think that arguments about COVID-19 and the safety or, or rather the insecurity of detention might be used more broadly to support arguments for the abolition of detention for people seeking asylum altogether? 
And on this, I wondered whether state premiers or state health ministers have been approached about the risk of coronavirus to those being held in detention centres and facilities. Thanks, Jane. And I think, you know, we've heard so much about the people in the community that are suffering and RACs, we're hearing countless calls from people, our job to make sure they're lawful so they can get Medicare, um, so that they can access services like Francis's. Um, you know, that's been a real big focus of RACs. But on the other hand, we're also supporting hundreds of people that are in the detention network. Um, and we've seen, you know, the past couple of days, um, a horrific rise in the number of suicide attempts for people in detention right now. Um, I personally put that down to the angst and the anxiety of the people that I'm speaking to in an environment where they cannot take any measures to protect themselves. Detention centres, you're sharing rooms with sometimes three, four people. Um, we understand that there have been measures taken to spread people a bit more out, but still people are in rooms of too. Um, it's very difficult. You know, something that I was turning my mind to is even when I visit a detention centre, how many doors and how many gates I have to push through, how many times I would have to touch a button in order to let me through and things like that. We think, well, you know, sure, we can, we can put some more hand sanitizer. People can wash their hands a little extra. But the reality and the environment of detention ultimately means that it is impossible for people in those centres to socially distance to the point uh, that we have been instructed to do here in the community, which is why it is such a risk. The other side of that is that we are all feeling isolation. We are struggling that we can't go and see our mums and that we can't go to the pub with our friends. Well, detention centres are in complete lockdown. You know, I as a lawyer can't get in to see my clients, let alone community visits, let alone family members going to visit people in detention, which is a real reprieve for them, particularly for those with mental health issues. Now, I'm certainly not advocating that we should um, let everyone into the detention centres right now because, of course, at the same time, we're saying people should be released because those detention centres are fraught with issue. Um, but we haven't got a balance right. We have, we're seeing a real decline of people that are struggling um, and we're not seeing any change in how we treat those people. The government has available to it many options to release people from detention. One, uh, let them go and live with their families if they have them, or two, community detention, which would enable people to be in the community, access support, um, and, and be able to protect themselves. I mean, it's quite difficult. You know, one of the oversights of detention is having places like the Red Cross uh, go in and to monitor. Well, right now they can't do that um, because those centres are in lockdown, which is a real concern. More concerning is we've seen the government today announce their intent to pursue a bill that was before government a few years ago, which will increase the search and seize powers of Australian Border Force. It is, I, I can't even comprehend that right now in COVID-19, we're having a conversation about increased powers of officers, but we're not having a conversation about the rights of people in detention. Uh, and, you know, me as a lawyer helping those people out, it's a constant struggle for me to wrap my head around what's going on in this outside world whilst ignoring the people that are inside. 
And I guess one, one final point that I do want to make is that I well appreciate the detention issue is complicated. I appreciate that there are a number of people in there that have served a significant period of time in jail and the like, and that raises a lot of anxieties in our community. But there are hundreds of people that have been on the ruin and Manus that are in detention that have commit absolutely not a, a remote crime. Um, their only crime is to be come to Australia and they're now facing seven years of detention and to continue to lock those men in, um, and women, let's not forget that there are women also in detention, these exceptionally vulnerable people that were transferred to Australia for medical treatment, we have left them in an environment that has been flagged as one of the highest risks in a COVID-19 world. And it's just completely unfathomable to me. So I'm not sure I really answered your question. I just more <laughs> ranted about what the issue is but it's just a really important issue. And we're talking about 1,400 people, 1,400 people that we could very quickly um, find a solution for. Sarah, I think, I mean, we've spoken there of the challenges that obviously people themselves are facing, but how difficult it makes your job as a lawyer trying to assist people. And I know that's something that you and the other lawyers at, at RACS have had to face for a long time. And, as with the others, I'd really like to thank you for your, your you. work. In fact, a question has just come through from mm. an audience member, which follows on from something you were saying. Mm. And it was in relation to people who have been medivaced here from Manus Island and, and Nauru, um, and, and whether you know what support is available. It sounds like for those in, you know, who are in detention, um, you've just outlined that, but are you aware of anything else? Yeah, so I guess firstly, a number of them still remain in detention. There are some who are lucky that are in community detention, but there is another issue that it's not really known to many, and that is that most transitory people, that's what they're labelled as by the department, um, are only issued bridging visas uh, for sometimes three to six months. Now, that means every three months, every six months, you need to reapply for your bridging visa. And you need to do that in order to still be able to access Medicare. So a big part of RAC's job at the moment is reapplying for bridging visas. It's an absolute menial um, task. It's not overly complicated, but it's quite literally the difference between support and protection and nothing. Um, bridging visa processing is incredibly long. Sometimes people wait weeks up to months where they're unlawful, waiting for the minister to make a decision on that bridging visa. Now, at that time, as we've heard, in a public health crisis, Medicare couldn't be more important. And so um, a big part of what RACS is doing now is calling the department every day with a list of people that we still don't have bridging visas for to try and hurry that system along. And that's just another way, you know, even for the people that have been on the rural manners that are here in our community, it's just another way that our government continues to punish them for doing so. Yeah, thank, thank you for those uh, insights, Sarah. Francis, I'll turn back to you. You mentioned that shortly, or just after the Asylum Seeker Centre closed because of the pandemic, you were inundated with three times the number of normal calls. So quite clearly, there are immediate impacts that um, these measures are having for people seeking asylum who are living in the community. So, you know, what, what are the immediate impacts for them? But what do you think 
are likely to be the longer term impacts for people as the pandemic continues and as the effects themselves roll on in time. And thank you. Before answering that, can I just add into a, um, a, an area that Sarah touched on as well? Mm, sure. Because um, I think one of the areas that you raised and, you know, racks to so much work in that is to bring to the attention of the government um, the options for people to come out of detention centres. And I know that there's a lot of behind-the-scene advocacy. We've certainly played a part in that. Amnesty has played, Red Cross. And, and there has been a uh, proposal put forward by a number of community groups with the legal groups to say, we would support the government. We would support people coming out. So the government has options and continues to say no. And people are trying to come part of the solution. So that resistance really adds to a different kind of layer um, of exclusion. And I, I think it's just that it often becomes because the advocacy is behind the scenes, lost, but it is there. And it needs to highlight a government continuing to say no when there are people offering support. One of the, um, the huge areas that we've seen, and Sarah touched on this as well, for the people who've been medically evacuated from Manus and Nauru, um, is that often they're placed in the community if they're not in detention or community detention, and they come to agencies like ours and many others across Australia, and they're not eligible for any support. So for example, we're continuing to provide financial support and assist in accommodation for those people who've been medically evacuated um, and are here and are needing support. Whilst we closed our doors to people coming into the centre, what we did do was keep open our health clinic for the very reasons that Sarah said. There are people here without uh, access to Medicare and often it is just a bureaucratic um, uh, void. It, it could be renewed, but there is a lag time and that really impacts on people, particularly now. So we've, got, we've kept our clinic going and we've got two amazing doctors who've given their time from University of New South Wales and Sydney University um, and have done that for um, many, many years. Um, and that's been really vital. It also means that when people have no um, income whatsoever, and say, for example, you're diabetic, you need insulin. That need doesn't stop because you've been, uh, you don't have access to funds. So agencies like ours, and this is when we've had really strong connection with um, state level support from Ministry of Health, where we can try and look at accessing subsidised pharmaceuticals, fundraising around that, and also um, being able to work in to get a response for people. But you're right in the sense of there's been an immediate crisis response um, to uh, the issues that people have faced and, uh, and the solutions to it. So the obvious one is food. I think there is food traveling across Sydney everywhere. Um, there are fantastic creations of new opportunities between um, uh, councils we're seeing with Oz Harvest and again with health. So there have been opportunities really pioneered by City of Sydney, for example, where they're giving out hampers of food provided by Oz Harvest, you can get a hot meal, you can also get a flu vaccination and you can get a COVID-19 test. So bundling is a really, um, it's a really uh, uh, innovative approach to how you can provide support. So one thing in the short term is food and getting it to where people are rather than expecting for people to come in. Housing is critical. 
in the short term, people, if you're on a lease, you can't be forcibly evicted. But many of the people we support are in arrears and have been probably since January. The big fear is people might go into payday lending and that would be disastrous. Um, but the reality is you are going to have a debt. Um, you may well, um, you might have a delay of going before a tenancy tribunal for two months, but then you may well still be evicted and you will have a debt and you'll have a negative outcome from a tribunal and that does not bode well for the future. So that, that it, housing, the housing issue and the homelessness issue is going to be an enormous one that we need to address. The access to um, schooling and what Shakupa was really highlighting, I thought, was that digital divide, that real importance of um, enabling people to stay connected, that almost continuum of care, isn't it? So that you don't let people fall through the cracks. That I think is, is really vital. Um, that ongoing concern about people and overcrowding, we've seen from countries overseas like Singapore and Thailand, what happens when people are not supported, they're excluded from supports. And as we are saying, there are many, many people sharing very small and cramped arrangements because they have no choice. For example, not only is the exclusion from um, Centrelink support happening, but when you look at homeless um, agencies, the issue of homelessness because of a complicated funding arrangement between federal and state means that they, um, the first question is asked is what Centrelink payment you're on. And of course, people aren't on a payment. Then it's like saying, no, we can't support people on temporary visas. So there's been this tremendous response from New South Wales to put people who've been rough sleeping or on um, homeless accommodation into hotels. And that's a short term response, but it excludes people seeking asylum, people on temporary visas. Um, the long-term effect of that really will need enormous creative thinking. I think we could say we're between stories. We're not really sure what's going to happen um, with COVID-19 and winter. Um, we need to understand and, and map that and try and be ahead of the curve. But what we can see in the long-term that there are new partnerships. Shakufa talked about that with NRAG as well, and that look at settlement services um, providing great support for people who are recognised as a refugee. But again, in that continuum, there, there probably will be new partnerships there for people seeking asylum because that's where we're you know, heading towards settlement. So I think there are those options. There are also the need to look at um, really creative um, outcomes. One of the ones put forward in the paper today around homelessness and those people in hotels is to look at a match within the construction industry because you're looking at a great deal of job loss, but there's gonna be a great deal of requirement for social housing. Obviously the people who are homeless and are, are fortunate, which is great, people are in hotels, they're saying that that might cease in September. Are you really gonna put people back in the street? Um, there are lots of those kind of challenges, but for people seeking asylum, I think the issue will be that in employment, which is critical, uh, majority of opportunities for employment that people seeking asylum were able to get were in the entertainment, were in the food industry. And we know that those are the industries that will come back much more slowly and many, unfortunately, won't come back. So this issue is going to be around for a while. And I think the long-term effect is we can't ignore the fact that people do need a basic income support 
whilst they wait. As Sarah said, people have waited for seven years in limbo. Um, people, and as Jane, as you said, the borders are closed. People are not going to go anywhere. We have to grapple with and really become creative and look at inclusion of people and not exclusion. I should finish it there. Francis, someone has just asked um, if someone living in the community seeking asylum does become sick with COVID-19, what, what happens? I mean, particularly for those who may not have other support, um, are, are you aware of anyone already or you know, what do you think is going to happen? I think it's a great question and we've been um, trying to plan of what would happen because it seems, um, depending on what happens, now, um, it, it, it could be inevitable or we might have, have um, squashed that curve. I think this is where you've got great support, say in New South Wales, and I really appreciate every state has different policy frameworks and um, attracts this differently. But in New South Wales, um, the Ministry of Health with Refugee Health as part of that have agreed to support people. And that also means um, because we've been close to, we were concerned that some people who we sent for testing because we were concerned for their health, what would happen if they were COVID-19 positive? The Ministry of Health um, have said that they will accommodate people and they will address in that self-isolation. It's obviously a short-term response, but at least it is a response. Thank you. Shakufa, I'll turn back to you now. And I wondered if you might be able to tell us what the risks of the COVID-19 situation are for children and young people from refugee backgrounds um, when it comes to things like their education, learning, well-being. And maybe as part of that, or it might have come up separately, I know it did in relation to the elderly in your report, what sort of barriers are digital literacy and also language, English language skills creating? Um, that's a very important question and um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, groups of young people within the refugee communities are affected very differently. Um, there isn't like a blanket consequence for everybody because I think that the um, rate and degree of digital literacy really differs from one family to the other and from one young person to the other, um, depending on what type of, you know, legal status they have, uh, how long they have been in the country, how synchronized their, you know, families are with, with, um, with the whole digitization um, era. Um, and so uh, I, the, the experiences have been really um, varied in there. Uh, but I would say that, you know, um, for young people who are actually holding temporary protection visas, especially, um, and as we heard in, in our consultation, um, it's, it's very concerning when you hear um, second year university students saying that, uh, on, on uh, Shev saying that, um, you know, I'm, I'm about to actually drop out of um, uh, university because um, I can't get special benefit uh, because I, I'm actually enrolled in a course that's beyond 12 months. So just the rigidity of uh, and the complexity of um, the requirement to get special benefit, the lack of flexibility, and I think the lack of equity um, in, in the system uh, for young people uh, who are studying um, at tertiary level, uh, it's, uh, it, it's really disheartening because you know, you see potentially a really um, great individuals and very uh, highly skilled individuals dropping out of university and ending up um, in really 
crowded accommodation and potentially ending up uh, with a job that's, uh, you know, um, that they take up out of compulsion. And I have to say that a lot of young people have lost their jobs and um, people, especially on temporary protection visas and, and bridging visas have uh, particularly found it really difficult um, to get a job, but also not be entitled to any of the economic um, stimulus packages from the government. Uh, but when it comes to resettled refugees and refugee families, I think um, the preparedness, the level of preparedness Preparedness was obviously not there, but that's common with uh, with everybody. Uh, homeschooling is a very new concept for a lot of those families uh, who don't uh, themselves have actually very basic literacy in their first language, let alone navigating this really complex ecosystem uh, when it comes to homeschooling and making sure that their um, their their children are actually keeping up with education. Uh, but also for some families, it also means that they might not have those the, the digital means. So you know, in terms of um, uh, internet. Um, that's fast enough or um, laptops, um, etc. Uh, but I think that um, children especially, children and young people especially, um, bear the burden a lot of the time in that um, on the one hand the parents um, really can't understand what's going on locally. So you'd hear that there's a lot of um, you know, circulation of misinformation and circulation of uh, conspiracy theories that they hear from uh, often the outlets uh, from the home, home countries only because they're not able to get their hands on, on locally available um, and understandable uh, information um, in Australia. Uh, so that really presents a lot of issues for young people sometimes to um, translate for their parents. And I think that when, when it comes to that, there, there's also a difficulty in parents understanding um, the third language almost that, you know, these refugee um, young people and children develop uh, because there's, it, it can be very jargonistic um, when it comes to uh, the reason Resources available, but also when you see simple things like you know um, uh, translated materials available on um, how you know the COVID nineteen um, economic supplements work, um, and you read them, they are in very academic, very complex language that your average literate person would not understand, let alone um, you know parents who don't have literacy in their first language. So uh, I, I mean, the government and the, the government departments, um, and settlement services, they have done a great job of making sure that they do. The their best, but I think that there is, um, you know, a long way to go before the information actually becomes useful. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that the recommendations that came out of the consultation was that people really wanted um, and uh, it, they really uh, needed actually video, uh, video visuals and audio visuals or even simple things like in-text um, reading ability on the websites um, for the information to become useful. So the young people and children are actually really navigating a very complex um, environment in their homes now that they're confined to their homes. Um, and there is no escape from actually burdening that responsibility of making sure that their parents, uh, their grandparents and the extended members of their family remain safe while also you know, um, navigating uh, this new environment where they have to um, uh, learn as well as, you know, uh, go forward their education, keep up. Thank you. I mean, there are clearly issues of access and equity across the board, you know, whether it's at different, for different generations or in different sectors. And yeah. just, you know, bringing that focus back to children again shows um, the impact it's having right across the whole community. 
Absolutely. You know, um, the fact that there is a very decentralized system when it comes to sharing resources or decentralized way of doing things uh, for refugee communities when it comes to information sharing at the very least, um, it really goes, uh, really the burden then falls on to family members and um, those family members are often young people because they're agile in both languages um, most of the time. Thank you. A question has come through from a number of different people about what role state governments can and are playing to assist people seeking asylum and refugees. I wondered if I might throw to you, Francis, for your take on that, please. Yes, it's a great question. I think when you look at um, the state governments and um, ACT, for example, as well, uh, there has been a lot of support, a lot of a different kind of support. Let me just say that in the moment, New South Wales and Western Australia are the two states who have not provided, provided a, um, a comprehensive COVID-19 package for people on temporary visas. So that being in New South Wales um, and Sarah Rax being in New South Wales, it, it is not for the want of trying or representation. Saying that, um, there are elements and departments within each state that are doing tremendous work. When you look at Victoria uh, very early, gave um, significant funds, even when, as Sarah referred to, the status resolution support service, when that income support for people seeking asylum ceased in March 2018, Victoria gave funds, um, ACT gave funds and Queensland gave funds, New South Wales didn't. With COVID-19, you can see that even as uh, two weeks ago, Tasmania and South Australia gave funds. So in recognition of the destitution that is being faced by people on temporary visas, and particularly people seeking asylum. Within, depart within the state, like say for New South Wales, where I can speak of, there has been exceptional support from Department of Education and in terms of refugee support within schools and really uh, recognising um, that not everyone has access to data. All the issues that Shakufa just talked about in terms of that burden on family and um, who are trying to navigate a system or a new system to do this on top uh, has been difficult, but they've shown really strong leadership. Ministry of Health has done that. Um, through Department of what was industry, now back with education, looking at employment programs. So that's a positive but there is not enough um, work done by the states. Many of the states um, tend to look at it that it's a federal issue. And in essence, it is in terms of a Centrelink payment. Um, and it really sits within the Federal Minister for Social Services and the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, to, uh, who we believe have the discretion to include people on temporary protection, on, on a, a um, Centrelink uh, support and uh, deciding not to actually uh, include people. So that's an issue and it plays down on the state. But what it really plays down to is um, the community and communities and, and charities. Thank you. Look, I, I've got a couple more questions before we're going to be at the end of this session. And I'd, I'd like now just to turn back to you, Sarah, and then I'll ask the final question to Shakufa. Sarah, it's, it's fair to say that 2020 has been a very tough year in Australia, um, from the bushfires over the summer, and then just a few months later to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
in both of these crises, we've seen some outstanding acts of generosity and leadership, solidarity and compassion. But I wondered if you could perhaps reflect a little bit on how you think we might be able to harness this empathy and community mindedness as we move forward, particularly when it comes to supporting refugees and people seeking asylum. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. I guess um, to be in the position that I am and to have worked with RACs for as long as I have, I have to be an eternal optimist that things are going to get better. I think we saw during the bushfires, Australia turn to each other. We turned outwards. We, you know, in the cities, we were supporting the regions. For people that fled, we, we embraced them. We sent food packages. We sent blankets. We opened our homes. People were offering to house people's pets. You know, as a community, we all wrapped around each other. Um, I've been a little disheartened to see that the opposite happened during COVID. Uh, during COVID, we've shut our doors. We've, we've isolated from um people we've said that community can look after themselves these people can go home i'm staying here in my little corner of the world and i really hope that there is some way that we can take these crises and and reflect on a community as to what we want to be and i think what we want to be is the australia that responded during the bushfires um, not the australia that we're seeing during COVID. I want to reflect a little bit on, yes, we've seen our other states, you know, particularly Victoria, put money towards uh, supporting people with financial payments. But really remarkably, the Victorian government also funded legal services. And, you know, in New South Wales, we have never seen that support. And right now, legal services are getting people the visas. Visas equal rights. Rights equals the little bit of support that people can muster. And so I'm really encouraged um, to see the Victorian government step up and recognise that. And I hope that that will lead to some change in the other states, um, particularly when I, I'm not as confident we're going to see that on a federal level. What has also been really um, remarkable, Rex has a petition at the moment, and we have seen hundreds of people sign that petition in support of financial support for people seeking asylum and people on temporary visas. You know, one of the big things that we struggled with is it's really hard um, to continue to ask the community for financial support right now when so many people have lost their jobs and they're worried about their own livelihoods. And one of the biggest questions we are we are getting constantly is, I'm really sorry, I can't donate right now, but what can I do? Well, what you can do is pick up your phone and call your MP and say, what are you doing to support people in our community? What you can do is you can share and like the posts of the organisations on this call. You can sign petitions um, saying you stand with people that are vulnerable and you stand with people that need support in the community. And I mean, every like on a RAC's Facebook post is just a little push for me in particular and a little push for my team because I'm sure, and you know, Shakuva can speak to this as well, it's, it can be very isolating for the professionals in this space also. You feel like you're constantly fighting a fight that shouldn't be fought. Uh, and so there's so many things that the community, that our supporters do that really push us that little bit further to keep fighting for the people that we fight for. Um, but also it's, it's something that you can do so you don't feel quite so helpless in a crisis that you are helpless in. I mean, I can't stop COVID-19. I don't have a solution for a global pandemic, 
But I do know that picking up the phone and speaking to the people that call racks makes a difference. And so that's why we keep doing it. And so we need everyone to keep rallying around the organisations like racks and ASC so that that community can continue to be supported. I really want to echo what Sarah's saying. And I want to do a shout out to all our staff and all staff around Australia because the heroes of uh, the bushfires were the, the firefighters, the volunteers. All of us are volunteer-led. So we've got amazing staff who are doing, taking the really difficult calls and doing their best to support people. So it's to our staff and it's also to our volunteers and the, the volunteer community because like RACS, like so many other agencies, despite the downturn in the economy, there has been overwhelming support and people going, I don't agree with the federal government. I want to do something. I want to make a difference. So really, it's a shout out to all, I think. Sorry. Thank you very much. And I absolutely would endorse that as I'm sure we all would. Shikufa, the final word goes to you and it's on this same point. So many of the people in the audience have been asking, what can we do? How can we join or is there, what possibilities are there for collaborative work between refugee communities, the broader local community and even government here in this pandemic? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. And I echo absolutely everything that Francis and Sarah said. And um, would like to add that, you know, um, that, you know, bushfires were strong reminders that, you know, given compelling, given the compelling um, dis, uh, displacement situation then, um, you know, it really forced people to flee for their life. It was a very intuitive thing uh, to do rather than um, uh, something that they like to do, something that they had a choice in. So, um, you know, constantly reflecting back as to, you know, just the, um, the sources of displacement and why people have fled in the first place and have uh, caught themselves in, in this web of vulnerability. Um, uh, reflecting back on, on why's, but also um, how uh, they can be helped. I think that at this time, it's uh, ever more important to really tap on the universal and shared values of sharing, uh, empathy, solidarity for the mo most marginalized um, groups in, in our societies, because this is a collective fight. This is a health crisis. The virus is not going to discriminate against anybody. Um, if, if someone of you know from refugee community or you know someone who, who has a temporary visa that's uh, infected by a virus it really threatens the health of everyone in Australia so I think that um, that movement has to come from within from the public um, and we can actually there are ways to create that um, you know solidarity uh, by making sure that you know people are uh, um, people are drawn into this uh, uh, arrangement of allyship where they they are able to call on their representative uh, to to seek support for the most marginalized in our communities, the marginalized groups that we've been talking about um, all of this webinar. And so um, and then referring back to leaving no, nobody behind in this crisis um, and that this is not just an Australian problem. It doesn't stop within our borders. It is a global pandemic. So it has to be approached uh, with a sense of shared, um, you know, shared grievance and shared uh, effort uh, to combat it. Um, and I think that uh, also going back to just co-designing and actually working with uh, affected communities in a very meaningful ways where you partner with them, where you have equal standing with them and you share a ways of working with each other and share solutions uh, as a, you know, in response to shared issues. Um, I mean, there are many ways, but I think those are some of uh, just the um, uh, main principles. Thank you very, very much. And if I can say, I think with the leadership that the three of you and all those in your organisations are showing, um, we're in very good hands, but obviously we need a lot of support from the community as well. 
And on that note, I'd like to thank so much all of you in the audience who've been with us today to learn from this really rich, informative discussion. I'd encourage you to keep an eye out for our future webinars that we're going to be having on related topics. And also to watch out for, or through our newsletter, look at our uh, COVID-19 watch blog. It's available on the Calder Centre website. And every week we're bringing stories and analysis from around the world on the impact of COVID-19 on refugees and people seeking asylum. Finally, I'd like to thank the Caldor Centre team for making this event possible. And I wish all of you uh, good health and safety in this pandemic. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.